ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. The origin of life remains one of the biggest challenges for the naturalistic view of origins, with numerous researchers and millions of dollars spent on the effort to uncover new insights into how life could arise through purely unguided, undirected natural processes. Recently, Science Daily reported that researchers at the University of Tokyo have for the first time been able to create an RNA molecule that replicates, diversifies, and develops complexity following Darwinian evolution. Hello, I'm Eric Anderson, and today I'm joined by Dr. Brian Miller to discuss this new research and what it actually shows, or doesn't show, about the origin of life. Dr. Miller is Research Coordinator at the Center for Science and Culture at Discovery Institute in Seattle. He holds a bachelor's degree in physics with a minor in engineering from MIT and a PhD in physics from Duke University. He has spoken internationally on the topics of intelligent design and the origin of life. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Brian, I'm really happy to have you on today to help us understand more about this particular experiment. I know you've actually done a couple of write-ups as well on this paper at Evolution News, and maybe we can link to those in our podcast. But take just a minute and tell us first what was sort of the basic research that was performed by these, uh, by these individuals at the University of Tokyo. Yeah, it was a research team. It was, a, it was many researchers, and it was one of the heads was Mizuuchi. And their article, Mizuuchi et al., was published in uh, March 18th this year. And the title of the article was Evolutionary Transition from a Single RNA Replicator to a Multiple Replicator Network. So that sort of gives the tone of the, of the research. And what happened is the researchers were looking at this RNA sequence, and they took that RNA sequence from a, a virus. And what this sequence did was it encoded for a replicase. And a replicase is a protein that will actually replicate RNA sequences. So you start with an, a large RNA molecule, and the replicase will use that as a template to create the complementary sequence. So then what, what the researchers did was they're essentially uh, starting with uh, an RNA molecule, and they were replicating this molecule. They were looking at how this replication process occurred over many generations. And what they found was that there were different versions or different variants of this RNA molecule, which they called the host molecule, that took dominance. And these different RNA molecules would encode replicases, and these replicases would preferentially replicate different molecules. And then also, sometimes the replication would be incomplete, so you'd get what was called a parasitic molecule, and that's one that lost information, so it could no longer encode a functional uh, enzyme. And then what they did is they, des- they described how this network would change with time from generation to generation. Right, right. Yeah, and, and let's dive into a little bit of that. But first, to kind of set this up, you and I have a colleague who forwarded this actual research paper to us, and I won't name him because I don't have his permission. But one thing he said in his email to us is this. He said, the news story, unfortunately, mangles what the experiment actually showed. When I read the Science Daily write-up, I assumed from its description of the experiment that the researchers had started with a single RNA, a genuinely self-replicating ribozyme, and bootstrapped that via mutation and selection into something more complex. And then he goes on to explain that that's not what really happened. Now, those of us, Brian, and certainly you, who have spent a lot of time in this area, immediately had a red flag go up when we saw this paper because 
you know, I certainly didn't think that the research had started with a single self-replicating ribozyme because there's no such thing as a self-replicating uh, ribozyme. But the point is that the research, as you mentioned, was very different than the press release. What were the press release claims that came out from the University of Tokyo? What I'm going to do is I'm going to actually read from the University of Tokyo press release. And that's what the Science Daily article drew from. And what they said is researchers at the University of Tokyo have for the first time been able to create an RNA molecule that replicates diversifies and develops complexity following Darwinian evolution. This has provided the first empirical evidence that simple biological molecules can lead to the emergence of complex life-like systems. So that's the actual claim from the press release. Yeah, that, that's a pretty impressive claim. So how does that hold up? Well, first of all, if they had actually done that, I can guarantee you that many of them would have received Nobel Prizes. Because that <laughs> would have been an absolutely monumental accomplishment. Yeah. But that's it's not actually accurate. Because when you go to the actual research, the published research, what you find is they actually borrowed all of the molecular machinery from E. coli bacteria mm. to perform the translation. So the RNA molecules were not doing anything. What happened was all this translational machinery would translate the RNAs into proteins, into the replicase proteins. And then the replicase proteins would then go and they would replicate and create complementary strands to the RNAs. And I also need to add that the information for those enzymes, again, was also borrowed from life. It was borrowed from a virus. Mm -hmm. So nothing actually occurred that was novel in the experiment. Yeah. So so what what is the result? I know you had mentioned it a little bit earlier, but let's dive in a little bit if, if our listeners can picture this. So they started with a strand that I think was 2,000 nucleotides long. And then what kind of happened over time as this experiment progressed? Yeah, so they started with this 2,000 plus nucleotide long strand with the information, the, the encoded information for the replicase enzyme. And then the protein translational machinery, which was provided, would produce the protein. And they produced actually one component of the protein that turned into a, a complex. And that complex was the actual replicase, which would create a, a copy of the RNA templates. And over time, different versions or variants of that RNA template, which they called the host, would emerge. So you just simply had different versions of this RNA molecule, and they all did the same thing. They all encoded the replicase enzyme. And what happened also is that you'd have some replication events which were imperfect. So it wouldn't produce the entire sequence, but maybe just part of the sequence, maybe a few hundred nucleotides long or 500 nucleotides long. And they referred to those as parasitic sequences. Mm -hmm. And what happened over time is you would see that different versions of the replicase enzyme would preferentially replicate different versions of the RNA, the host RNAs. And they'd also preferentially replicate different parasites. So they would describe that as the network that evolved with time. So what happened over time is you simply had the same function operating, which was replication, but different versions of the RNAs would simply create enzymes that would replicate different versions or different variants with different efficiencies. That's what they described as the evolving network. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, and you've probably looked at it a little more closely than I have, if I'm not mistaken, there was no new information that was added to the host RNA. And in fact, in most cases, it actually lost part of the sequence. I think some of the parasites were only a couple hundred, maybe 220 uh, nucleotides long, and some of the others were around 500. Uh, that's correct. All of the useful information, the functional information was provided beforehand. They copied that from a virus. They, they mm -hmm. supplied the useful proteins. 
And all that happened is that the same function uh, repeated itself, but different versions of these enzymes would do it with greater or less efficiency or accuracy with different molecules. So it was the same function, just with different micro adjustments for its efficiency. No new functions emerged, no new structures, nothing novel actually took place. Yeah, and I think that one of the ways that the researchers described this sort of final result is that they said the frequencies in the population fluctuate and gradually stabilize, which is a very positive spin on this, a very positive way to say, you know, hey, we've, we've got some fluctuation and then stabilization. Uh, a friend of ours noticed that this is really saying that you have these parasites that come into the system, you have saturation, and then you have plateauing where nothing new is happening, which they, they're calling stability, but it's really a plateauing, which means it's no longer evolving or changing or doing anything interesting at that point. Uh, that's correct. You would just see different sizes of parasites that would emerge, and then they would dominate the population in different levels as time went on. And then there was sort of this plateau. But that's an extremely optimistic interpretation of the experiment, because the only way they were able to maintain the replication is they created these micro compartments. It was sort of an oil, a water and oil emulsion. Mm. They had to do that because if the experiment was simply allowed to run in, let's say, a, a large vat, and an earlier paper that was done by some of the authors in 2013 described this, is that what happens without extraordinary amounts of experimental intervention with creating these micro compartments is the parasitic RNAs would eventually dominate. Because they're right. smaller, they can replicate more efficiently. So if you were to, let's say, take this experiment, uh, take it back in time to the early Earth, drop it into uh, some pool, even if you maintained replication where you still provided all the machinery, the parasites would become more and more dominant. They would take up the attention of the replicases, and eventually you would not get new replicases. So the entire system would collapse because mm -hmm. eventually the replication would take place at a rate that's slower than the RNAs would break down. So the whole system would collapse. That's what would really happen over long periods of time. Yeah, that's a really great point you make. And just for our listeners, because we've been using this term parasite and parasitic, we're, we're not talking about a living organism here. That's a term that they used for a short version of the RNA that wasn't the original host. And it was parasitic, quote unquote, I'm putting that in quotes, because it tended to take over the system, as you say, not because it was doing anything interesting, not because it was gaining a function, but because it was a shorter string of nucleotides and therefore could be replicated more quickly, right? Yeah, that's correct. In fact, a better term would be non-functional RNA because it, mm -hmm. it would no longer contain the information needed that could be translated into a some sort of ribozyme that was a replicase. And, and yeah. this, and, and you really actually see this all the time. Like if you look at other experiments, famous experiments like Spiegelman's monsters, when they referred to is whenever you do these experiments where you're replicating RNAs over time, they tend to get smaller. And uh, they lose all function except for replication. So they, they become very efficient at self-replication, but they do nothing else. So yeah. what that means is this entire strain of research points to the fact that you'll never get life to emerge from a self-replicating network of RNAs because all they do is self-replicate, even if you provide all the machinery for that process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just tend to shorten and which, you know, look, I mean, if you kind of step back from a minute and get your get your mind outside of the Darwinian and the evolutionary paradigm and you just think about reactions, what your reactions are going to do is tend to do that, which is most thermodynamically favorable, that which is quickest and easiest and run downhill until they run out of until they run out of reagents or it grinds to a halt. I mean, so, so this is a very in some ways, it's almost a well what do you expect? 
but it's interesting that in the context of evolution, this idea that these shorter parasite, as they call them, RNAs, are being replicated more quickly simply because they're shorter or because they've lost something that, that took a little longer to replicate, that is viewed as a quote-unquote function or a or a, um, an advancement somehow, but it's really not functioning in any way that we think about function like in an engineering sense. It's really losing capability and just going with what's, you know, this, this downhill headlong um, run to wherever it's going to end up, which is, as you say, the system kind of breaks down and, and, and stops. And that's even with all the machinery, as you mentioned. Yeah, and, and that's what's really key. And that's something you see with all origin of life research is if you take their experiments they can only do something interesting if they supply information, like the mm-hmm. information in the replicase. They supply extremely complex molecular machinery, like the, the replication machinery, including ribosomes and tRNAs and enzymes. And they have to create incredibly orchestrated and specified experimental conditions. So this entire process only took place because they had very sophisticated protocols where they were changing temperatures, conditions, and so forth to move this thing forward. You take any origin of life experiment, you dump it into a primordial pool. Yeah, in the, the primordial soup, pool, right? Yeah. You know, or, or into a thermal vent. What will happen is everything break down to simpler molecules and you'll, you'll have to start over from scratch. That's what always takes place. Yeah, excellent point. So this idea that they talked about this network, I want to dive into that for just a second because they talk about a RNA network or this replication network. And they say that this shows that you could start with one network and end up with multiple networks. But what, what were these multiple other networks? Is it just these other degraded versions of the RNA that are, that are being replicated? Uh, yeah, so they describe network in, in, a, in an interesting way. What they found was that you have different variants of the original host RNAs, and these different variants of the host RNAs would produce really the same thing, which was a replicase enzyme. And, and, why, and why are those variants, Brian? Is it just because there's copying errors? Or what, yeah, what? because there's copying errors. When yeah. you have the replication, you're going to change some of the nucleotides, yeah. and, and okay. that's going to create variants here and there in the, in the system. And then what happened is over multiple generations, those variants just resulted in the production of these these replicases that would more or less efficiently uh, replicate the host RNAs or Mm -hmm. parasites. So there wasn't any new function. It was simply the same function with different levels of efficiency. And and they would draw a nice little picture where where the arrows they drew were thicker if they were more efficient, they were thinner if they're less efficient. And then that's the network they describe the change with time. But it wasn't really a network. All it was was the enzyme which was provided beforehand, the sequence was provided beforehand, doing the very same thing throughout the experiment, which is replication, just with different levels of efficiency. Okay. And so we start with the host. We have some copying errors. We end up with a few different versions of this RNA. And then those versions have a, have a different tendency, we could say, to work with a particular um, RNA sequence. And that's that's their quote-unquote network. Okay. Yeah, so some were highly biased towards replicating certain host versions of the RNA. Some could replicate several versions fairly efficiently. So that was the only real variation that you saw. Yeah, thanks. This is really helpful, Brian, in helping us understand what this research was. So just to kind of back up for a minute, does this research actually help demonstrate how life could have emerged on the early earth through a natural process, or does it emphasize the need for design in that process? Well, this experiment, like almost all the experiments that are of this same genre, demonstrate the absolute necessity of design in 
the origin of life and even any life useful system. Because one, they demonstrated that you have to provide the information beforehand to produce any useful structure. So again, as I said before, they borrowed the RNA sequence from a virus and that sequence was what allowed, that was translated into a component of the replicase. A second thing this shows is that you must have complex molecular machinery to perform biological functions. So they had to provide an enormous numbers of enzymes and cellular structures to drive the translation of the RNA into proteins. It also shows that anything lifelike requires enormous amounts of direction. So like in cells, what happens, you have lots of molecular machinery that manage the cellular operations. In this particular experiment, you had very sophisticated experimental protocols that were essential to push forward every stage of the replication process. So this all points to the absolute necessity of design. Excellent. Well, Brian, this has been super helpful. I really appreciate you joining us. I'm hoping you could come back and maybe talk to us a little bit about some of the implications of this research. Uh, thank you. It would be a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of ID the Future. To learn more about the origin of life and the evidence for design and purpose in nature, check out other episodes of ID the Future, as well as our YouTube channel, Discovery Science. As always, if you find these discussions to be a valuable contribution to the public conversation about origins, consider sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.